Well, he's back. You know, uh, yeah, oh man. Most pastors don't ever have the opportunity of pastoring a church twice, but most, and I'm going to be really careful how I say this because I have worked on this. Um, the last several years, I've served in interim preaching roles, actually seven, seven different churches in the last nine years. Um, if you would have ever told me as a senior pastor for many years of my life that I would be serving as an interim pastor, well, I'm not your interim pastor. I'm your transitional pastor. And there is going to be a wide difference in that, I think, that, that as we work and as we journey together, um, we're going to have some fun along the way, and we're going to have challenges. And I want to be upfront about that that part of my role now will be to not only love on you, and I hope that, that you will understand and sense that as a pastor. Uh, many of you have already said to me, why, why do you walk around before church and, and greet people? Because I want to know you. Because I have a desire to know you, and I want to get, uh, I want to figure who you are, and I, I want to figure that out, and I also want you to figure me out. Because guess what? Uh, pastors need relationship. We absolutely do. And uh, so uh, I'm still got my full-time job. Uh, they haven't fired me yet. The board of directors have, have still said, Alan, we want you to be the CEO of Agape Flights. And I, I won't mention that a lot, but I would just urge you, if you saw the news yesterday, there's a great turmoil going on in Haiti. And, and that's, uh, that's been going on for a long time, but especially in the last six months. And then this week, we lost our license to fly into Cuba uh, with the new regulations that went into effect. And so pray for us that we will get a snap our license and that we'll continue to minister into Cuba. But as of last Wednesday, uh, we lost all, all opportunity to go into Cuba doing the things that we're doing. I've got about 10,000 pounds of water filtration units right now that need to go into Cuba for churches to have clean water and for people to be ministered in that way. A couple of weeks ago, after I was here with you, my wife and I traveled uh, out to Williamsburg and the Smoky Mountains on vacation. We had a wonderful time. I got off my diet for a couple of days, gained a couple pounds. It was glorious. Uh, I'm back on now, and I'm doing the things that I need to be doing. But we had the opportunity to go to Charlotte and to visit our son Daniel and his bride Jenna, and they have a two-year-old my grandchildren, a two-year-old, Piper Jane, and a seven-month-old, Judah, and they're expecting four more, according to Daniel, in the next three months. I don't know, but uh, he just wants to have it. And Jenna's saying, no more for a little while. Let me get the two out of diapers. But, but when I walked into the, the, their house, and they have a beautiful small first first home but just so proud of it and and I, I i was just so thankful that as i walked into their home there stands piper jane hands on her hips hi pop you know she calls me pop i said well piper jane come give pop a hug she said no not right now she said pop do you know hulk i said who i thought she was talking about one of her friends she's talking about the marvel comic, you know, and the, the Marvel character, Hulk, okay? She goes, Pop, Hulk, strong. Well, I'm standing there being instructed by a two-year-old, and she goes, Pop, Pop, strong. 
And for just a moment before I grabbed her up and hugged her and said, yes, I am strong, run to pop, you know, I, I held her in my arms because she thinks pop is strong. Every grandchild thinks their grandfather should be strong and is strong. But as I stood there and held her, I thought about what I'm going to share with you today. And it's, it's really fresh as well as personal to me over the last seven years of my life. The Joshua journey is a journey that we're going to take, and we're not going to go verse by verse through this book, but if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn with me to the first chapter of the book of Joshua. And I want to talk to you this morning and communicate with you that the victorious life is not a superior brand of Christianity reserved for the elite of the elect. You see, it is the normal life for every one of us as believers. It is not bestowed upon some, some because they're spiritual or, or it's, it is given to all of us because we're saved. We're no longer slaves to fear. We're children of God. And too many, of us, too many of us are struggling to win the victory every single day that, that has already been won for us, ladies and gentlemen. It was won 2,000 years ago. The Christian life is a victorious life, and anything less than that is a cheap imitation of the real thing. Listen to what Jesus said. I come and I came that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. He's not talking about heaven there. He's talking about right now. And so it will help for us to understand that the Christian life can be divided in two stages. The Red Sea stage and the Jordan River stage. With a wilderness in between. What, what the cross is to us, the Red Sea was to Israel. It was a symbol of their redemption. It was their deliverance from the bondage of Egypt by the mighty hand of their God. And they looked back at the Red Sea as we look back at the cross, and they celebrated the Passover as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But it wasn't enough to get them out of Egypt. Moses reminded the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 23, he says, And he brought us out from, from there, that is Egypt, in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. And the purpose of their redemption wasn't realized until they entered the land of Canaan. And to enter the land, they had to cross the Jordan River. Then and only then, would the redemptive purposes of God be fulfilled? This may surprise you, may surprise a lot of you, but Canaan never symbolizes heaven in the Bible. Oh, I know, we, we, we sing church hymns that have been written, but the Bible doesn't say that. There were giants in Canaan. There are no giants in heaven, ladies and gentlemen. There were battles to be fought in Canaan. There, there will be no battles in heaven. The battle has been won. God's people sinned in Canaan. In heaven, all traces of sin will be erased. Canaan represents the fullness of our salvation, the fullness of blessing, the possessing of our possessions. Canaan was what God redeemed Israel for, just as victory is for us. That's the reason God saved us. He brought us out in order that he might bring us in. 
Now, I hope you'll stay with me this morning because many Christians are out but not in. They're like those spoken of in 1 Corinthians that die in the wilderness without ever experiencing the fullness of Christ. For most of my life, for most of my ministry life until 2012, I struggled with, with, with trying to do enough to get God to love me a little more. I struggled with trying to, to do enough that people would like me and, and accept me. And, and, be, and listen, all of us want to be accepted. We want to be appreciated. We want all of those things. But on June the 12th, 2012, after serving one year and a couple of months as the CEO of Agape Flights, I came to the end of myself. And I won't go into all of that this morning. I had to, I had to literally lay down in the, in the passageway between uh, our bedroom and the, and the bathroom and cry out to God and say, God, I desperately need you. I don't need you just for an event. I need you to be real in my life every day. And God, I lay it down. I surrender. And God began to work a work in my life as never before. In fact, the Old Testament describes Canaan as a land flowing with milk and honey, a, a land luscious with grapes and pomegranates and figs. But the New Testament describes Canaan as Philippians 4, 7, a peace which passes all understanding, joy unspeakable in 1 Peter and full of glory, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, more than conquerors through him who loved us, Romans chapter 8. Are you in the first nine verses of Joshua? Tell us three important things about the life of victory. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word, Joshua chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. In every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man, listen to this, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong. And courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I, I don't want you to do it in a wimpy kind of voice. I want you to look at him and say, be strong and courageous. Let me hear you. Wow. All right, you can be seated. 
You give Baptists a chance to talk, and they're going to talk, aren't they? <laughs> Be strong and courageous. Listen, there are three things I want to share with you this morning about this particular passage as it relates to me, as it relates to you, as it re relates to us. And the first thing is this, victory is the goal of the Christian life. Often, often I hear people refer to the victorious life as an emphasis. It is not one emphasis in the Christian life. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the Christian life. Victory. That's why I use the terms Christian life, the victorious life. They're interchangeable. You hear me week after week after week. When we think about this, escape from servitude in Egypt was not God's goal for his people. He took them out of Egypt in order to bring them into their own land. The land that he had promised them, generations before God had made this promise to Abraham, as Abraham stood looking over this strip of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which you see. I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. That's what, that's what God said to Abraham. Now, freedom from Egypt was simply the first step. Until they occupied Canaan, they would not experience God's complete rescue operation. Now, in the same way, God's goal in saving you and I is not just to get us out of hell and into heaven. That's just the bonus of the real goal, and that is for us to experience all that he has promised us in and through and by Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not an incidental emphasis in Scripture, but it's its, its heart. Listen to what Paul said to the Roman believers. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul revealed the goal of salvation. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Not a word about heaven or hell. Paul wrote to the Christians at Colossus, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In all God's dealings with you, he has been leading you and I up to this goal, the full release of Christ in us. Now, that is your only hope for a glorious, victorious life. Paul makes another point when he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us to triumph in Christ. Is it possible for a Christian, is it possible for me to be victorious? Well, since the Lord Jesus can, can give you victory for a minute, can he give you victory for an hour? And the answer is yes. Can he give you victory for a day? Can he give you victory for a, a week or for a month or for a year or for a lifetime? Anything less than always triumphing in Christ is less than God's desire for us. But wait a minute. Time out. Does living the victory, then that, that life, mean we no longer sin? Not at all. But it does mean that we learn 
to depend upon Christ for every single aspect of our life. We live in his strength, not our own. We serve his desires, not our own. We live for his glory, not our own. And when we sin, instead of plunging in despair and guilt, we run and we trust his cleansing blood to wash away that sin and restore us into that sweet, wonderful fellowship. We become super sensitive to sin. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us, immediately we deal with it. The best way to define the Christian life is to describe it. So let me describe it through the Scripture. First of all, we enter into God's promises. The promises of God become experiential instead of merely theological. God's promises to Joshua, ladies and gentlemen, were definite. They weren't, maybe I'll do this. He told the Israelites that the land was theirs. They needed only to act, to act with strength and courage and obedience. And the promises made generations earlier were fulfilled before their very eyes. I'm afraid so many of us as Christians look at the promises of God like I did as a young boy looking at the Sears catalog. You remember that catalog? Some of you, some of you, I just dated myself because you're saying, catalog? What's a catalog? You mean you shopped online? Sort of. I remember this catalog. It was called the Wish Book. Oh, man, I'm old. The, and so are you, by the way, if you just said, yeah. There was a 22 caliber rifle in that Wish Book. And as a 10-year-old boy, I thought every 10-year-old boy, now this, okay, don't, don't, don't hurt me after church, but I thought every 10-year-old boy that lived in the, in the hills and hollers of Arkansas where my father pastored needed a 22, and I did. I did. And, and man, I spotted that 22 rifle in that catalog, and it cost, I hate to even say this, $25. But for me, it could have been $2,000. That was a lot of money. Knowing it was beyond my reach, I would get out that catalog and I would turn to that, that page displayed the, the picture of my rifle and my dream. And no wonder, you know, wonder they call it the wish book. But, but too many of us read as Christians, we read the Bible as that. We read it as a wish book, like I did as a 10-year-old boy. And by the way, somehow my dad thought it was smart to get a 10-year-old a 22 caliber rifle, but he did not give me that rifle until he properly trained me on how to clean that rifle, how to take it, take it apart, how to use it, how, to, how to, to handle that rifle. And so I will tell you this, that so many of us read the promises of God, and when they're preached from the pulpit, we may even utter an amen every once in a while, but never really expect them to be fulfilled in our lives. But the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, is not a wish book. It is a faith book. And for those who by faith cross over into victory, all the promises of God become real. We, we experience, secondly, God's presence. One of the promises that God made to Israel and repeated it often in this chapter is, I will be with you. I don't know what that does for you, but I know what it has done to me in the last seven years. To know that I am not alone, to understand that on an experiential basis, day in and day out, that I have a father. 
my earthly father passed away in 2012, and I, I don't think there's too many days go by that I don't think about wishing I could talk to my dad, pick up the phone, or call my mom, or call my dad. And while they're in heaven and I would not bring them back, do you ever, are you like me, do you ever just long to hear your mom's voice or your dad's voice? But my dad taught me, and now I'm experiencing this on a daily basis, that I have a father whose name is God. I have a Savior whose name is Jesus. I have the person of the Holy Spirit who lives in me, abides in me. I'm not alone. He promised he would be with me when, when he answered my desperate cry for help. I began to experience this overwhelming awareness of his presence because Christ became more real to me than he ever had before. But not only that, we exercise God's power. Listen to what Joshua says in verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. He was telling Joshua that no man could prevent Israel from reaching their God-appointed goal. Joshua would have the power to do everything God asked him to do. When the original spies went into the, the land, they cowered like grasshoppers before the giants of Canaan. The Bible says, but Caleb, standing on the promises of God, declared the giants would be bread for them. Pass the peanut butter, ladies and gentlemen. Make the sandwiches with them. And a generation later, as Israel acted in God's power, they found him spreading a banquet table for them. God's power gives us victory over the giants in and around us. First Baptist Church, listen to me. We become not only giant defeaters, we become giant eaters. Resurrection power. Apostle Paul said, I pray that you may know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Which is easier, solving that problem or raising a dead man from the grave? The answer is obvious. If God can raise one from the grave, he can do anything. He can do whatever he wants to. You and I have resurrection power residing in us, but we have reigning power. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. God made kings out of slaves, princes out of paupers. But notice the verse says, in life, not in heaven. He's not talking about the sweet by and by. He's talking about the nasty now and now. He's talking about today. And then he's talking about release power. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The life of victory, First Baptist Church, that I no longer labor according to my own strength, but according to his. My ability is no longer measured by my power, but by his. Throw the word impossible out of your vocabulary. You can do anything and everything God wants you to do. There is nothing that can prevent you as an individual and this body as a church to be exactly what God wants you to be. Over the next several months, we're going to be discovering what is it that God really wants First Baptist Church to be? What is the mission of this church, truly? I've asked several of you, and I've gotten a multiplicity of answers what the mission and what the vision of this church 
really is, then victory is a gift to the Christian. Victory is not only God's goal, is also his gift. Every pace on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. Notice the, the tense, I have given. Not I will give, it was already theirs. God had given the land with all of its riches to his people before they saw it and before they even knew what it was like. I don't know about you, but that blesses me. Understanding that the victorious life is a gift already given to us by God is essential. It is yours. That means victory is assured. There is no reason why every Christian cannot live a life of victory because it is not attained by striving or by struggling. Most of my life, that's the way I tried to attain it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not attained that way. It is, it is your birthright as a child of God. Now, look in your Bibles real quickly at Joshua chapter 2. Rahab, an insignificant citizen of the soon-to-be-conquered city of Jericho, said to the spies, and, verse 9, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. And, and, and then look at verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth and on the earth beneath. The enemy knew they had lost before the Israelites knew they had won. They had more faith in the power of God than God's people did. Listen, since victory is a gift from God, it is already accomplished. Be strong and courageous. Before Joshua led the people into Canaan, God said to them, I have given it to you through the land. And though the land was occupied, as they began to go through the land, it was God's, and he had given it to this people. Every step that Joshua took was on conquered ground. And that's what the life of victory is for us, walking on conquered ground. On conquered ground. There's the last thing I want to show you this morning. It's this. Victory must be gained by the Christian. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You just said it was conquered. We don't have to do anything. No, hang on just a minute. After going to those great lengths, Scripture holds to both concepts. God told Joshua he had already given them the land, but that they would have to possess it. And you know what? That would require strength and courage. Although the gift was absolute, it had to be appropriated. Someone can give you a gift, but if you don't receive that gift, if you don't have that gift, if you don't take that gift as a possession, that gift will lie dormant and wasted. It would be like someone donating to Agape Flights and me just saying, you know, I don't think we're going to open the mail today. Let's just let those gifts stack up in the, in the box. Trust me, we open the mail every day. 
We're like every church, every not-for-profit. We, we thank God for, for people in 50 states and, and donors and, and those sorts of things. But if you, don't, if you don't take that and become a good steward of that, stay with me. The same idea is made clear by Jesus in Matthew. Come to me and I will give you rest. And then he said, you shall find rest. Which is it? Does he give it or do we find it? Both. We can find only by taking his yoke and learning of him. Rest is given, but rest must be gained. There is God's side of giving, and there is man's side of gaining. How do we gain it? Well, the victory is gained by faith. Joshua was to take God at his word and start walking. First Baptist Church, listen to me. God is not finished with this body. God has great potential for growth and for continued ministry. You have a wonderful, wonderful history. You have, have well over 100 years of ministry in this community and in this county and in this state. But the best days are not behind us. They are ahead of us. Why do you say that, Pastor? Because God is God. It's not, it's not, and trust me, if you call a pastor in the future thinking he is the answer, you are sadly mistaken. You're sadly mistaken. If you think that this transitional pastor can walk in with his, I almost said briefcase, I don't even carry a briefcase, I carry a Steph Curry backpack, okay? Under Armour backpack. But, but I didn't bring anything in my backpack except the things that I, I need. I don't have the power to change you. I don't have the power to go, whoo, here it is. You, if, if a man had, but God, God has the power. Can you imagine a Sunday morning where in three services this whole, this whole building is full? I mean, can you imagine that? Well, you need to start dreaming you need to start listening because with God, all things are possible. The victory is gained then by following. Listen to what God said to Joshua. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the law uh, that, that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left that you may have good success wherever you go. Here's God's formula for success. And the victory is gained, thirdly, by fighting. Uh-oh, I just... Open the door for Baptists to do what they like to do. <laughs> when the people left Egypt, God could have taken them a direct way straight into Canaan, but he led them by a circular route instead. God deliberately made the journey longer. Oh, Lord, why? Because the explanation comes in, in Exodus. Now it came about when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by, by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and they return to Egypt. They weren't ready to fight in the inner Canaan. The land of fullness is occupied by the enemy. And they entered Canaan. They had to encounter warfare. Let me tell you, along the way in this transitional pastorate, there will be fighting. There will be warfare. There will be challenges. Understand this. There will be conflict and confrontation. In the late 1940s, the United States government constructed an $80 million troop carrier for the Navy. 
The purpose was to design a ship that could speedily carry 15,000 troops during times of war. By, by 1952, after World War II, the United States, SS United States, was complete. The ship could travel at 44 knots, about 51 miles per hour. She could, she could steam 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. She could outrun any other ship and travel nonstop anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. In 1952, that was something. The, U, the SS United States was the fastest and most reliable troop carrier in the world at, at the time. The only catch is this. She never carried troops, at least not in an official capacity. Instead, the, the United States became, the SS United States became a luxury liner for presidents and heads of state and a variety of other celebrities who traveled on her during the 17 years of her service. As a luxury liner, she couldn't, carry 15,000, she could only carry 2,000. Those passengers could enjoy the luxuries of uh, 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck with a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Instead of a vessel used for battle during wartime, the SS United States became a means of indulgence for wealthy patrons who desired to coast peacefully across the Atlantic. Things, ladies and gentlemen, look radically different on a luxury liner than they do on a troop carrier. The faces of soldiers preparing for battle and those of patrons enjoying their bonbons are radically different. The conservation of resources on a troop carrier contrasts sharply with the opulence that characterizes the luxury liner. And the pace at which a troop carrier moves is by necessity much faster than that of a luxury liner. I would tell you that when I read this story for the first time, the troop carrier has this urgent task to accomplish. The luxury liner, on the other hand, is free to casually enjoy the ship, and the cruise. Unfortunately, most churches in America resemble the luxury liner. God designed us to carry soldiers into battle. We become more interested in the comforts along our journey and so much as that we've actually quit moving toward the battle and we've started moving back. When you attend a service at the average church in America, you typically hear more about programs and amenities that you can find on the ship than you do about the mission that God has called us to. I guess it, 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 it is what they say it is, a service. Like the staff on a cruise ship, the church is there to serve its patrons and its members. Unfortunately, those members are there selfishly getting fed and consuming those services when they should be thinking in terms of being transformed and trained by the gospel so they can accomplish the mission of serving the world with the gospel. To borrow a phrase from James, my brothers, it should not be so. What if the church we're coming together to equip its members 
its troops to take ground for the kingdom of God, to take Manatee County for the kingdom of God, to take the state of Florida for the kingdom of God? What if we removed the luxuries from the church and focused only on the mission? What if we saw our ultimate goal as sending troops into the world rather than catering to the whims of members? What would it take to convert the luxury liners that we have into troop carriers again? What organizational changes do we have to make in order to to start making those in-the-heat battle decisions? If we were to return to our troop-carrying calling, would the church be able to accommodate 15,000 soldiers who shared space as opposed to 2,000 patrons? fighting for position in space. If we focus, ladies and gentlemen, on this calling, would the church move at a faster pace, unhindered by the petty internal arguments? God has called us to a life of victory, individually but corporately. That life of victory is God's goal and gift for every believer. We're to be a troop carrier. And we understand and need to understand this morning that that life of victory has already been accomplished by the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you didn't know it this morning, he is alive. He's alive and he's well. But that doesn't mean that every Christian automatically experiences this victory. There is something for us to do. We must appropriate what God has made available. Jesus invited all who were thirsty to come to him and drink. He doesn't force force our mouths down and pour it down us. We must do our own drinking. The fountain is waiting. Come and drink. June 12th, 2012. Laying between our bedroom and the bathroom, my face down in the carpet, crying out to God, God, I can't do this. I need you, Lord. God, you reveal this, this sin in my life and this pride and this arrogance and this, and he revealed a lot of things that even for many, many years as a pastor, I had stored in my heart, even, even feelings of somebody had, had hurt me or hurt my family. God began to work on me about forgiving people. Listen, sometimes church people can be really mean. Now, don't look shocked. Some of you are smiling like, oh, really? Yeah. But it doesn't mean that we have to get mean or it doesn't mean that we have to become vindictive. And there that that morning I began a, a journey with the Lord and I'm still on that journey. I have not arrived. God's still working on me every day. My wife will tell you it's a, it's a journey that she's loved watching. But I've actually become a better dad. Even though they're all leaving, they've all left. I become a better husband. I become a better CEO. I become a better man, not because of me though, because when he increases and I decrease, 
And now I'm living that experience of knowing the Lord's fullness, the real thing. First Baptist Church, as we embark on this journey, I'm asking you to join me. I don't know all that God has for us over the next whatever. I don't even know what the whatever is. I don't know the length of time this transition will last, but I understand and know this. God is the author of that. God is in charge of that. But I'm going to ask you, will you join me in this journey? I'm going to ask you this morning, in this response time, and it may take us a few moments, but will you come and say, Pastor, will you come and say to John, Pastor John, will you come and say to one of these people who will be down here, I'm in the journey. I'm in this journey. I'm glad. You don't have to say I'm glad Pastor Spears with us, but, but if, you, if you want to say that, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> but just say, I'm in. I'm with you. I'm in, and I want to experience this life of victory. I want to see victory at First Baptist Church. You see, I long for the day to see every one of these seats filled. You say, Pastor, that won't happen like that. With God, all things are possible. I mean, it could. But all he wants to know is, are we available? Are we in? I want you to bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Nobody's looking. I know I've, I've gone a